0: Welcome to the Parkside Podcast from Parkside Baptist Church in Superior, Montana. For more information about Parkside Baptist Church, we invite you to visit our website at www.parksidemontana.org. Now, here's this week's message. Father, open our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to grow in faith and knowledge and wisdom that we may glorify you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're looking at verses 18 through 25 of Romans chapter 8, and just to give you a brief rundown of the next couple of weeks, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8, and the week after that is, of course, Christmas. And we will be on our regular schedule, but most likely we're going to take a break from Romans and do a specifically Christmassy message, and then... On New Year's Day, we'll start off 2012 with a return to Romans 8, picking up in verse 28. That is, if all goes according to plan. And you know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and men, or squirrels and men. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope but who hope for who hopes for what he has for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience we live in a pampered and very unpleasantness-averse culture. A culture where the, the slightest hint of even the mildest discomfort is seen as an affront to our personal dignity. And any discomfort at all is to be avoided at all costs. Some large businesses have been deemed too big to fail and have received government subsidies on the basis that if they failed and put all their employees out of work, it would result in Too much suffering. Quite a few preachers want to promise people that they can live lives free of, or at least containing minimal amounts of, suffering. They write books with titles like, Your Best Life Now, or It's Your Time, Activate Your Faith, Achieve Your Dreams, and Increase in God's Favor, or Every Day is a Friday, how to Be Happier Seven Days a Week. And that's just picking on one author. Another of these preachers wrote one titled, Reposition Yourself, Living a Life Without Limits. Well, in the immortal words of the dread pirate, Robert, and yes, I'm quoting from the Princess Bride, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And the guys who write these books are selling something but they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their views and their teachings are not shaped or informed by the Bible. The Bible says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's Job 5.7. Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. It's John 16.33. The fact is that this world is full of suffering. Suffering, both major and minor, surround us. It's unavoidable. Everything from hangnails to painful death face us each and every day. We live in a world that is full of suffering. Paul was no stranger to suffering. We looked before at how he was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, etc. for his proclamation of Jesus Christ. Paul understood suffering. Eventually, tradition tells us Paul was beheaded by the Romans because of his persistence in proclaiming Christ. Paul writes in the first verse we're looking at today, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Many take this to be referring specifically to the sufferings that Christians will face in this world, the suffering that Paul was facing simply for being a Christian preacher. And we're told that as believers we're going to face opposition from those who are opposed to the things of God. In John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because of, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there there is a a suffering that the Christian who is trying to live a Christ-like life is going to face simply on the basis of being a Christian, being opposed by the world that is opposed to God. Remember we said that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. In Second Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we are going to face persecution if we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't face great persecution in America, as we have brothers and sisters around the world who are facing actual life and death situations for professing Christ. There's a woman in Pakistan who's awaiting execution because she's a Christian, and There was apparently some sort of altercation in the field where she was working because she dipped into the water bucket and the Muslim women wouldn't drink from the bucket because it was now defiled. And for this and the conversation that followed, she's facing death for blasphemy against Muhammad simply for being a Christian. We don't face anything like that. We we get ridiculed on the internet. Ooh, you know. But we don't face the kind of persecution that others around the world face. Well, it's certainly true that Christians will face persecution from non-Christians for their faith. However, I think Paul here is his view is much broader than that. The, the, the suffering of this present time encompasses not only the fact that Christians suffer, but also the fact that chipmunks suffer. This this encompasses. All of creation, verses 19, 20, 21, 23, make it clear that he's talking about the entirety of creation. He's referring not only to the sufferings Christians face, but to the sufferings that are faced by everything and everyone. Because there is no one on this earth who doesn't face suffering, whether they believe in Christ or not. Suffering is a reality for every human being. And not only every human being, but every animal, every bird, every fish, every plant must face suffering on this world. These present sufferings, which Paul is using to mean all the things that beset this world, these present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory to come. We'll expand on that in a minute. Paul continues on in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now Paul's clearly referring here back to verses 14 through 17, which we looked at last time, about how all who are in Christ have been adopted as children of God and joint heirs with Christ. We who are in Christ have been adopted, right? Right? And we are joint heirs with Christ. But we have not yet received that inheritance. Right? There's something that's yet future in all of that. And the creation, Paul writes, is awaiting the full fulfillment of God's promises. Now It's easy to understand why the adopted children of God are eagerly looking forward to receiving their inheritance. Right? I mean, we get all the good stuff. Uh, The children of God will inherit everything, because we are joint heirs with Christ, Christ is the inheritor of everything, we're joint heirs with him, we get all the good stuff. That's certainly something to eagerly long for, that's something to look forward to. So it makes sense that the Christian, who is the adopted son of God and the joint heir with Christ, would look forward to this fulfillment. But why does the rest of creation, and the creation here means everything that God has created, why does the rest of creation eagerly long for the revealing of the sons of God? Because all of creation suffers under the curse brought on by Adam's sin. I said every bird, every animal, every fish, every plant suffers under the curse. Even the rocks and the rivers and the streams and the ocean suffer in some way because of the curse. The curse brought on by Adam's sin. Paul continues For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We live in a beautiful place. We look out the window. We drive up and down these roads. We live in a beautiful place with mountains and lakes and trees and streams and wildlife. I mean, face it, western Montana is beautiful. It's one of the reasons we live here. We like it here. Even the snow, which is kind of a pain, is pretty. Yet, this is the world that's cursed. This is the world that has been cursed by God because of man's sin. All creation subjected because of the fall. Thorns and thistles affect the plants. Joyful work becomes unpleasant effort. And on and on it goes. If this beautiful world in which we live is the world that has been cursed... Then what must earth have looked like before Adam fell? What must Edom have been like? Stop and ponder that for a minute. Beautiful summer evenings around a campfire on the shore of a lake without mosquitoes. Roses without thorns. Work without toil. Companionship without conflict of any kind. I, I I can't even come up with many good examples because all of my knowledge and experience is shaped by life on this cursed earth. And what the world without the curse was like is unimaginably foreign to everything I know. I can't imagine all the ramifications of what it must have been like before the curse. But God has promised... That that curseless earth that was, will be again. God has promised new heavens and a new earth. First verse of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, heaven here refers to the physical universe. Both the earth's atmosphere and outer space, not God's abode. So when it's talking about a new heavens and a new earth, it's talking about a new physical universe. Um, we've talked about this before, but the, the first heaven is used to you know heaven, heaven is used to talk about the air, the, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. Genesis: 123 talks about the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. Well, birds don't fly in outer space. It's talking about birds flying, the heavens can be used to refer to the sky above the earth. But heaven also can be used to talk about outer space. And we always talk about this as the second heaven. Um, again, Genesis 1. Genesis 1 refers to the sun and the moon and the stars as lights in the expanse of the heavens. So we got birds flying in the heavens, but they're not flying in the same place that the moon and the stars are. So, so we've got the, the 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 heavens can be used to refer to the atmosphere around the earth. Can also be used to refer to outer space, and heaven can also be, of course, used to refer to the abode of God. and And Paul hints about this in Second Corinthians, and, and he actually calls it the third heaven. So we have the first heaven, which is the air, the second heaven, which is the outer space, and then the third heaven, which is God's abode. Um, in 2, 2 Corinthians, Paul said that he was allowed to visit the third heaven, either in a vision or in person, where he saw things that he couldn't talk about. It, it was the same third heaven where much of the events of John's visions recorded in the book of Revelation take place. So, new heaven and new earth is talking about a new physical universe. A new physical universe where the curse of the fall, the curse of sin and death, is absent. The curse has no part in the new heavens and the new earth. So all of creation eagerly longs for the revealing of the sons of God, because at the time when the sons of God will be revealed, the curse upon the earth, the curse upon all creation, will be done away with. Just as Paul cried out, and we cried out with him in the end of chapter seven, 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We long to be freed from the curse that plagues our flesh, the curse of sin and death. Just as we long to be freed from it, creation longs to be free from the curse. All creation desires to be set free from the bonds of corruption and decay and death. And the curse of Adam's sin. Picking up in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation longs for an end to the curse. Paul pictures creation groaning in pain and misery waiting for the end of the suffering. Pain in childbirth was part of the curse that God leveled on Adam and Eve specifically on Eve and all the women to follow her and on all creation at the fall let's remind ourselves of exactly what God said when he pronounced the curse so flip over to, to Genesis chapter 3 let me read verses 18 through 19 excuse me 8 through 19 Genesis 3: 8 through 19. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So when Paul talks about the whole creation groaning in the pains of childbirth, he's certainly referring to God's words here to Eve. And he's also talking about, he's talking either about the earth being in labor to bring forth the new earth, or he's using the image of the pain of childbirth to represent the curse as a whole. Both images work, don't they? The, the pain of childbirth always precedes the joy of a new child, right? So the, the, there's certainly an image of something good coming out of the present suffering. Something, as Paul said in verse 18, that is so good that the present suffering can't even be compared to the joy to come. Last spring, when we were going through the Olivet Discourse, we saw that Jesus used the same analogy of birth pains to describe the troubles on the earth right before his second coming. So so birth pains equal suffering before birth, which is a joyful event. So there's a suffering leading up to joy. The the pain of childbirth could also be seen as a synonym for the, the entirety of the curse. Because the part representing the whole, because it's clear that, that Paul is referring to more than just the pain of childbirth in talking about the curse and the groaning of the earth. And and when we read through Genesis 3 just a minute ago, it said that the, the ground is cursed because of Adam. So the, the earth itself was cursed because of Adam's sin. It's not just the childbirth. So the, 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 the pain of childbirth could be seen as a synonym for the entirety of the curse that has been placed on the planet. And this also has merit. Creation is groaning under all the aspects of the curse, not just the pains of childbirth. Back to Romans 8, picking up in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The, the first fruits are the pledge of the harvest to come. Sort of like the previews of coming attractions at the movie theater. Like creation itself, we eagerly await with groaning the fulfillment of our adoption as the sons of God. So we have the spirit of adoption, we have the promise of adoption, we have the hope of adoption, but we do not have yet the reality of adoption. It's not realized yet in its full fruition. We still live in these cursed bodies on this cursed world. We're still suffering daily from the curse of sin and death. Oh, certainly every day isn't as bad as it could be, and some days are downright pleasant, but every day is marred by the curse. Every day we live here is marred by the curse. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. Now, for for way too long, our ideas about heaven and eternity and and what eternity is going to be like have been shaped by popular culture and not by scripture. We we have all these ideas about heaven. We have images of fluffy clouds and golden harps and white robes and gleaming white Greek columns and St. Peter standing at the gilded gates like the doorman at some high-priced New York hotel. The only one of these things ever mentioned in Scripture is the white robes. The Bible really doesn't tell us much about heaven and eternity to come. And I believe that the Bible doesn't tell us much about heaven and eternity to come because we are just unable to grasp it anyway. It would be a waste of time. I've heard it described this way. Describing eternity with God to us now would be like describing a honeymoon to a five-year-old little girl. I'm not talking about the the sexual acts of a honeymoon. I'm talking about the communion between a husband and wife to a five-year-old little girl. She's going to be saying, well, can I take my dollies? Can I take my best friend? Can I take... You're not going to want any of that. But The five-year-old little girl can't understand that all the things that are important to her now will not be important to her then. She can't grasp it. Well, in the same way, we can't grasp heaven. All of the things that are important to us now, things that we cannot imagine being happy without, won't exist in heaven. And we won't miss them. I, I, I mean... I love football. How do you have a football game between perfect people when nobody ever makes a mistake? You have the perfect offense going up against the perfect defense. It'd be the immovable object and the the irresistible force meeting because the defense would never make a mistake. The offense would never make a mistake. What would happen? Yeah. So it, it's it it'd be a long game. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a long game and it'd be kind of boring. And and so these things that bring us joy here, the lack of them won't even matter there. Just like a bride doesn't want to take her dolly with her on her honeymoon. But when she was five years old, she couldn't imagine happiness without her dolly. See the, the correlation I'm trying to make here? Isaiah and Ezekiel and John all gave us brief glimpses of God's throne room. And and they all mention God's throne being surrounded by a glassy sea. What is that? I don't know. Is it really smooth water? Is it ripply glass that looks like water? What is it? I don't know. But all of them all of them mention this. They talk about rainbows. They talk about Angels constantly flying around God, singing of his absolute holiness. They they talk about thousands upon thousands of angels, angelic beings who attend his every command and, and await his will and wait to serve him in whatever capacity that they're supposed to serve him constantly. What does it all mean? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody really knows because it's beyond anything we've ever experienced. We can't, I mean, go back and read, I didn't, didn't mark it down here, but go back and read the passage in Ezekiel where he describes the beings and the wheels within wheels and the eyes and the fire. And you're like, what is he talking about? He was doing his best to describe the indescribable. He was seeing things that he couldn't comprehend, and we couldn't comprehend him any better than he could. Paul clearly states that there are things yet to come that we cannot understand. He, he said, speaking of this future day of redemption, when the body's going to be redeemed, he, he wrote in Second Corinthians, We now see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Mirrors in the first century were horrible. They were mostly polished pieces of brass or bronze. If you were really rich, you might have a polished piece of silver. But even a polished piece of silver didn't give a really good reflection. They couldn't get metal smooth as we can. Because we think even now, a polished piece of stainless steel, you can see pretty good. That's not what we're talking about here. These mirrors didn't give good reflections. Um, You wouldn't want a first century mirror as the rear view mirror on your car. Because you wouldn't be able to see anything behind you. You couldn't see anything out of it. They were barely adequate for fixing your hair and shaving. And they certainly weren't good for looking at anything at a distance through. Well, just like the mirrors of Paul's time didn't show clear images, our mental images of heaven aren't clear. Because we can't grasp what it's going to be like. We are incapable of understanding what heaven's going to be like. We can't see clearly what it's going to be like, because what it's going to be like is so foreign to anything we've ever known. But we do know this, because the Bible makes it clear. We will spend eternity with God, not as disembodied spirits floating around on fluffy clouds, with, with harps and some ethereal plane. We will spend eternity with God as beings with physical bodies. Bodies like the bodies we have now, but without the effects of the curse. No more aches and pains. No more gray hair. Bodies where everything works all the time. Bodies that don't grow tired. Bodies that work right. Bodies that don't grow old and die. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The redeemed bodies won't die. Because the ultimate expression of the curse is death. The day of you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying, you will die. Was what God told Adam and Eve. What Paul has said, through one man, death entered the world. Through Adam's sin. We eagerly awake the redemption of our bodies... Because bodies no longer subject to the curse of sin and death are needed to live in the new heavens and the new earth. New bodies fit forever. New bodies fit for forever on a new earth. Perfect bodies suited for the court of a perfect king. We're in verse 24 of Romans 8 now. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we, have, what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, remember, biblically, hope isn't wishful thinking. Biblical hope is looking forward to a sure thing. Remember, we hope in the promises of God. Well, when we hope in a promise of God, we're not saying, Man, I sure hope God keeps his promises. Because God keeps his promises. So when we hope in the promises of God, we're looking forward to the time when he keeps his promise. The promise that he has made that he will keep. In this hope, we were saved. We were saved with the hope that this adoption as sons and this this existence as joint heirs with Christ, these are all promised to us. This new body that's free of the curse has been promised to us. The new heavens and the new earth on which we will dwell in these new bodies has been promised to us. This is the promise in which we hope. This is the hope in which we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. They'll say, we don't see this now. Who hopes for what he sees? You don't eagerly look forward to something you already have. You can rejoice in what you have, you can enjoy what you have, but you don't eagerly look forward to what you have. Right? Who hopes for what he sees? You know, you don't I hope I'm going to have something tasty for lunch when the plate is sitting right in front of you and lunch is there. <laughs> then you're just enjoying lunch. You're no longer hoping. The hope has changed to having. We hope for what we do not see. Now that we hope for what we don't understand. We can't understand heaven and eternity and a life without the curse. Because we never experienced it. We really do see through a mirror dimly. The King James says we see through a glass darkly. Although the mirrors in that time period weren't glass. They were in the 1600s when the King James was, but the first century mirrors weren't glass. But that idea that, that we see the shadowy images of a bad mirror We don't see what the mirror is reflecting. But then we will see, and then we will understand. So we're hoping for what we don't see. We're hoping for what we can't see. We're hoping for what we can't understand. But we're hoping in it because God has promised it. And he says, We wait for it with patience. Why patience? I don't know about you, but I'm impatient, I don't like waiting. I get grouchy. My wife is laughing. I want what I want when I want it. And every other human being on this planet does too. That's, I think, part of the sin nature. But impatience is a sin. See, when we're impatient, we're questioning God's timing. God has promised us all these things then, right? And we're still you know in our sinful bodies and we're still subject to sin and we still you know that which i want to do i don't do and what i do i don't want to do that's the reality that we face every day so we're impatient we want that now you know i want that perfect young body again that's been promised i want to i want to be able to you know not get tired and not get achy When I work. I look forward to that. But when we're impatient, we're questioning God's timing. And impatience shows a lack of faith and a lack of submission to his will. When we're going through things, even when we have questions about what we're going through, we need to remember the answer God gave to the questions that Job had. When Job was facing suffering that's way above and beyond anything that any of us have ever faced. Yet. We don't know what the future is going to bring, but knowing everybody in this room, none of us have faced what Job faced. Right? I mean, we've all lost loved ones, parents, siblings, spouses, whatever. We've all felt the pain of loss. None of us lost all of our children in one day. Like Job did. Well, in the midst of that suffering, all Job really wanted to know was why. He never questioned God's holiness. He never questioned God's goodness. He never questioned God's right to subject him to what he was being subjected to. All he wanted to know was why. He, He didn't even question that God had a purpose. He just wanted to know what the purpose was. And when God finally answered Job, he said, I'm God, you're not. I'm God, you're not. Why am I going through this, God? I'm God, you're not. Now, he wasn't saying you're going through it because you're not God. He was saying, you're going through this stuff for my purposes, and they're my purposes. I'm God. You don't need to know why. You just need to know that I'm God and I have a purpose. So when... Does all this take place in God's timing? What should our attitude be towards this? Well, we should be joyful. We should be absolutely joyful because of what's been promised to us. Every time we stub our toe on the curse as we walk through this world, we should rejoice in the fact that I won't always have to put up with this. This curse, the effects of which I'm facing won't always be here. And there will be a time when this will be done away with and we will have a new heavens and a new earth where this won't be a factor. So we can rejoice every time we run up against the curse. We can rejoice in the fact that we won't always have to put up with this because God has redeemed us and that redemption will be, will culminate in a world where we don't have to put up with this where the the curse will no longer be. So we can rejoice. But we're also supposed to be patient because it's God's timing, not ours. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples right before he was about to ascend into heaven after the resurrection? It's in the first chapter of Acts. Jesus had just spent 40 days with them talking about the kingdom to come talking about all the promises that were yet to be fulfilled, that would be fulfilled at the time of his second coming. And after the 40 days of teaching him, when they were walking out on the Mount of Olives, his followers asked him, Lord, is it now? Is now the time when you're going to set up the kingdom? Specifically, he said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's all throughout the Bible, there are promises for a future for Israel. And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The timing isn't for us to know. The timing isn't for us to know. So we wait patiently for this fulfillment of all of these promises. So we can be joyous that we won't always have to put up with the curse with which we live day and day. Not only will we no longer be physically cursed... But the world in which we walk will no longer be physically cursed. Roses won't have thorns. And we wait patiently. Submitting to His will, knowing that He is sovereign. It's His timing. He has it all set up. He has written the end from the beginning. He knows when and where and exactly how it's all going to culminate. So we wait patiently. We wait patiently. For the future glory that is to be revealed when the adoption of His people is culminated and the curse is done away with and the new heavens and the new earth are presented as our home for eternity where we will live with God in a world without the curse. In bodies without the curse. Worth waiting for? Yeah. Worth waiting patiently for? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, what a Joyous promise where we look at all of human history and we see the, the damage to lives and just everything that, that has resulted from the curse of Adam's sin and we read this promise that there is coming a time when this will all be done away with when we will be able to enjoy the world without the curse of Adam's sin where we do eagerly long for this. We do groan in our present sufferings, but we know, as we have seen in your word, that what we're putting up with now here pales to insignificance compared to the glory that is to come. So Lord, as we wait, we ask that you would help us to wait patiently. And as we wait, we pray that you would show us the reason, the purpose for which you have us waiting Because we are not here without purpose. We are not here without a task to do. And so we pray that you would make our task clear. And that you would shape us and mold us to fulfill the task. And that you would use us for your purposes and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.